Titus to Titus chapter 3. The last time I spoke, we were in the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 1.15, where Paul says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So that was a trustworthy saying. And we see another trustworthy saying here in, in the book of Titus. These trustworthy sayings were sort of like what we have as statements of faith today. They were short summaries of what the early believers believed about who God is, about what, what he's done for us and his son. And so we'll see another one of those today, or at least begin to look at that. So we'll read Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. But before we read, let's pray together. Father, we know that those around your throne never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy. And so we join with that chorus this morning in declaring your holiness and declaring that we are unworthy sinners to enter into your presence. And we know that it is only by the blood of your Son. As we turn to your word, we long for our hearts to truly say with the psalmist that the law of your mouth is better to us than thousands of gold or silver pieces. So please grant us a hunger for your word, that we would eagerly study it. Grant us a humility to humbly receive it. And grant us understanding by your spirit to behold wonderful things out of it, so that we would be conformed into the image of your Son. We long to know him. We long to walk in a manner worthy of you fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in our knowledge of you. That we would be fully pleasing to you in all that we do, in every single area of our life, the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart, everything we do, everything we desire, everything that we say, that this would be pleasing to you. So help us by your Spirit for that to be more and more true of us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Titus chapter 3. Before we read, let's just kind of give a... Uh, we're in chapter 3 of the book, so clearly two other chapters came before. So let's just do a, a brief summary. Just going from the headings, if you have the ESV, they uh, helpfully have, well, all Bibles have these headings, but depending on what version you have, the headings will be different. So in the ESV, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 is just summarized as greetings. Greeting. Here Paul is just introducing, saying who he is, that he's a servant of God, he's an apostle of Christ. He's greeting Titus, and he's declaring the, the mission, the ministry that God gave to him. The next section is titled Qualifications for Elders. In verses 5 through 9, Titus is reminding, Paul is reminding Titus of why he placed him on this island of Crete. He said that he left him there to appoint elders in every town. And he then gave him a description of what an elder is to be. 
The reason, in part, why there was to be these elders who could teach the word and rebuke those who contradicted it is because there were many who did not live in that way. He says in in 10 through 16 that there's many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. So there were these false teachers in the church, and so Titus's job were to establish godly leaders who could rebuke those false teachers as well as lead and teach the people in what is true. In contrast to these false teachers, the next section is called Teach Sound Doctrine. So what was Titus's mission? He was to appoint these elders, and then he was to teach the people sound doctrine. And not doctrines just uh, teaching the, the truth of God's word, the truth of, of who God is. So Titus was to teach those things, but not just the information about who God is, but then also about how that doctrine, how that teaching impacts our lives. So in verses 1 through 10, or 2 through 10 of chapter 2, Paul describes how each of these different groups are to live, how in light of who God is, this is the way their lives should be different. So chapter 2, is uh, verse 2 is older men, verse 3 is older women, verse 4 is young women, verse 6 is young men, and then you can see in verse 9 is bond servants. So all of these different groups, Paul is instructing Titus, this is what you're to teach them. This is the way they're to live their lives. And those ways are reflective in our implications of who God is. So the sound doctrine about what God has done for us, now this is the way that impacts our lives. And then... Verse 11 through 14, he describes what God has done for us. What is that sound doctrine? What is the the gospel that impacts our lives? It's the fact that God's grace has appeared, that Christ gave himself to deliver us out of our sins so that we would be a people for his own possession. These are the things that Titus was to declare. And that then brings us to our passage in chapter 3. So we will read chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Our focus will just be upon the first two verses, but we'll read this whole section to get the context. So chapter 3, verse 1, Paul told Titus, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us." not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, 
so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So our focus, as I said, is going to be on verses 1 and 2, where Paul gives these commands, once again, as to how, as God's people, we are to live our lives. Now, if you were to take these verses out of context, how would you understand them? You could either understand them as just moralism, as Paul's basic message, is just, just be a nice person, try a little harder to, to be kind to one another, do nice things. Or you could understand them as, as legalism, as what Paul is saying is, these are the things you must do in order to gain God's favor. If you're going to be loved by God, if you're going to be accepted by God, then these are the things you must do. That God has this standard and you have to do these things to reach that standard. But when you see it, these verses within context, you see how the gospel is on either side of them. So the gospel leads into these things and the gospel flows or founds is the foundation of these things. So we already saw in chapter 2, verse 11, how Paul says what? The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So we were in sin, we were in darkness, and what happened? God's grace appeared, God's grace came, God's grace shone upon us. You see, a similar thing in chapter 3, verse 4 that we read, Verse 3, he's saying, this is who we were. But then verse 4, he says what? But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. So you have the gospel before. This is what God has done. His grace appeared and brought salvation for all men. And you have the grace after that functions as the foundation of these commands. We were in sin, but what happened? The goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, and as a result, He saved us. So, as we look at these verses, we need to keep those bookends or those pieces of bread, using those analogies, in mind that what we're looking at flows from the gospel and depends on the gospel. We cannot separate these commands from what God has done for us in Christ. Because if we do then we will totally miss the point of them. We will begin to do these things in this anxious fear that if we are not good enough, if we don't measure up, then God will not love us. Or we will do them in arrogant pride, thinking that, yeah, I'm better than everyone else. Look at what I'm doing. I'm doing these commands. They're not. But when we remember the gospel, when we remember what God has done for us in Christ, that He's the one who saved us, that His grace appeared and brought salvation to us, then we will remember that we do these things because of what God has done for us, and we do these things only by what God has done for us. So with that as, as the introduction, let's now turn to verse 1 of chapter 3, where Paul begins by saying what? Remind them. So the things that Titus was to teach the people... 
was not to be new things, but it was to be things that they already knew. Someone had taught them, this is the way you're to live your life in light of what God has done. These are the types of qualities. These are the, the, the way your heart should be. This is what your actions should be. They had been taught these things. And so Titus's job was not to teach them something new, but, to, but was to remind them of what they already knew. Why did he need to do that? Well, one reason is we need to be reminded because we are so prone to forget. Though they had already been taught these things, Titus was to remind them lest they forgot them. And you see that as a repeated emphasis in the book of Deuteronomy, where the people are getting ready to enter the promised land. Moses is not going to be able to enter in with them. And so he's giving these final sermons to them, these final exhortations as to encourage them to continue to trust in the Lord, continue to love him, don't turn from him. And he is saying to them, take care, don't forget what God has done, don't lose sight of all that he's done for you, how, how he brought you out of Egypt, how he led you through the desert, and now how you are on the brink of entering the promised land. When you enter in and you experience all the blessings of the Lord, all the prosperity that he will give you, do not forget what he has done. Just one example is chapter 4, verse 9, where Moses says, Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Take care. That should remind us of the book of Hebrews, where the Author is again and again saying what? Take care. Be on, be on guard. Don't, don't turn from Christ. Here Moses is saying, take care lest you forget. So Titus was to remind the people lest they forgot, lest they were to forget these things. Also though, by reminder, remi- when we're re- reminded of something, it, it's not just that it helps us not to forget, but it's also a means by which we are are stirred up in our fervor to seek after the Lord. So by someone reminding us, this is what God has done, this is the way we're to live our lives, it's, it gives us this greater desire, this greater fervency to seek after God. And we see that in, in 2 Peter. In, in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter says how God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So God has given to us in Christ everything we need to live a godly life. And in light of that, he says, now, seek after this godliness. Add, add all of these qualities on top of one another. And Peter says that he's doing this, chapter 1, verse 12, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I am in the body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things." So he says, I'm, going to remi- I'm reminding you of these things. You already know them. You're already established. But I'm reminding you why. He says, so that when I die, so that when I depart and, and go to be with Christ, at any moment you can remember this. 
So he wanted to emphasize these things so much that the people at any time, if they were to be asked, hey, what did Peter teach you? They could, they could instantly recall what he had taught them. But he says also that by reminding them of this, he was wanting to stir them up to increase their fervency to seek after the Lord. Because they were his desires that they would passionately, diligently seek after these qualities, that they wouldn't be lax and lazy and indifferent towards them, but that they would earnestly seek after godliness. And the way he sought to stir them up to this was by reminding them about what God had done for them and the type of life that God then calls them to in light of that. And that's then what Titus is to do. He is to remind the people of these things. So as we come here today and we read these things, it's helpful to have that understanding of why we need to be reminded. Because it's easy to come to a passage that we've heard before, perhaps we've memorized, perhaps we've taught, and to think what? I know that. I I already know this, and so we can kind of check out or just sort of somewhat pay attention, but not really have the a desire to want to know this, because what? We've already heard it. We already know it. But the point is, what? Yeah, exactly. That's what Titus was to do. He wasn't to teach them something new. He was to remind them of what they already knew. Why? So that they wouldn't forget, and so that they would be stirred up in their fervency for Christ. So if you're here today thinking, I already know this, then that's the whole point. Yeah, okay, great. Maybe you don't know it. But if you do, you're going, we are being reminded of it. We are seeking to remind ourselves of what we already know so that we wouldn't forget it and so that we would have a greater fervency to seek after these things. So what is it that Titus was to remind the people of? First thing you can see in chapter 3, verse 1, he was to remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. To be submissive is to submit yourself to the authority of another. To willingly place yourself under them. And the people were to submit themselves to who? To the rulers and authorities. In in both Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, there's a fuller explanation of submitting ourselves to, to rulers and authorities to the governing authorities, and to human institutions. So both Paul and Peter give this command as believers, as the people whom Jesus has purified for his own possession, we are to be those who are submitting ourselves to the governing authorities. Why is that? Why is it that we should be submitting to them? And it is because God is the one who appointed them. If you look at Romans 13, or you write it down so you can check it out later, Romans 13, verse 1, he says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. 
Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So he says, you are, as God's people, to be submissive to the authorities, to the governing authorities. Why? Because God is the one who put them there. No human authority exists apart from God instituting that. So as his people, we are to submit ourselves to those authorities that he appointed. And we do this regardless of whether we agree with that authority, whether we like that authority, because we're doing it not for their sake, but for the Lord's sake. Which is what Peter then says in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, he says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So why do we submit to the authorities? Because we agree with them? Because we like them? Because they're of our same political party? No, he says, you are to submit yourself to them for the Lord's sake. And why? Because, he, because the Lord is the one that put them there. And also, Peter goes on to say, lest we give unbelievers a reason to despise us. So we are to submit ourselves to those authorities that God appointed because we are we, we know that God is the one who put them there, so we're doing it for his sake, and we want to have a good testimony before unbelievers. So as a, as a testimony to unbelievers, out of reverence for the Lord, we are to submit ourselves to these authorities that God appointed. And often at this point, we we bring up either from Daniel or for, from Acts the fact that there were people of God who did not submit themselves to those in authority. In Daniel, we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refusing to submit to Nebuchadnezzar because Nebuchadnezzar was commanding them to bow down and worship the statue he has set up. And in Acts, we see Peter and John saying to the authorities, we must obey God rather than men. So we need to keep that qualification in mind as we talk about submitting to authorities. But we also need to be careful lest we just immediately point to that as a justification for our sinful desire not to obey God's command. So yes, it is true that we are not to submit to the authorities if they are asking us to disobey God's word, if they're asking us to go against his will. But we need to remember that as we're learning from Hebrews, our heart is very deceitful. And it is so easy for us to use that as an excuse to justify our sin. So we need, in those times when we are saying, I'm not going to submit to the authority, we need to really search our heart and make sure we're not doing that just because we don't want to submit to these people we don't like. Because again, why are we doing this? We're doing it for the Lord's sake. We're not doing it because we like the authorities or we think they are good authorities or because we agree with them, but we're doing it for the Lord's sake because He is the one who put them there. And so out of reverence for the Lord, 
we submit ourselves to these people even if we don't agree with them. And it is clear from the context that the kind of the assumption is that we don't particularly like those that we're submitting to. Because notice what he says in verse, uh, going back to Titus chapter 3, verse 3. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So he says, we ourselves. And so by implication, what? These, these qualities are what marks the people that we're called to relate to according to verses 1 and 2. So he's saying, these people are like verse 3. They're foolish, they're disobedient, they're led astray, and yet we're to submit to them. And his point is going to be, because we were once just like them. So the assumption is that we're not... I mean, it's easy to submit when we like to submit. It's hard to submit when we do not want to. And so it's in those cases that we really need to hear this command in the instances when we don't particularly like those who are in authority, and yet out of reverence for the Lord, we will submit ourselves to them. So we are to be, Titus was to remind the people, and as Jesus' people here today, we are to be reminded to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Second, though, what does he say? Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. And here, Unlike the first command where he says, submit to rulers and authorities, here he doesn't give a specific group or a specific person that we are to be obedient to. We are just to be an obedient people. So it could be that he's just pointing back to the first command, we're to be obedient to the rulers and authorities. But from other passages, we see that this obedience, there's a number of areas in which that's to take place. Children... If you say, yes, I love Jesus, I want to follow him, I've trusted him as my Savior, I'm submitting to him as my Lord, then what is the command is to obey your parents. Servants are to obey masters. Members are to obey church leaders. So there's a number of areas in which this obedience is to take place. And again, just like with with rulers and authorities, there's the qualification of we're to obey as long as we're not being asked to disobey God. And so you think of an, uh, an abusive situation, to obey in that case would not be a thing that would be honoring to the Lord, would not be in accordance with God's will. But, again, we need to examine our heart, lest we're using that merely as an excuse to not obey because in our sinful flesh, we do not want to obey. And if you look, going back to 1 Peter uh, of chapter 2, he gives three examples of where submission is to take place. He says, as citizens, we're to submit ourselves to the authorities. Servants are to submit themselves to masters. And wives are to submit themselves to husbands. And in his discussion about servants, listen to what he says. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. He says, Servants, 
Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So Peter tells servants, you're to submit yourself to your master. You are to obey them. Even if they are not good and gentle, even if they are being unjust, you are to submit yourself to them. How in the world could they do that? And he points to two things. He says, You are to submit as you do these things. And the first thing he says in verse 19 is they were mindful of God. So they could could suffer unjustly because they were mindful of God. Not because they were mindful of how good their master was. Because their master was not good. Their master was unjust. They could submit themselves to their master because they were mindful of who God is. So their focus was upon God. Their focus was upon honoring God, upon trusting God. And so because their focus was on him, they could submit themselves to this unjust master. And then he points to Christ as the perfect example of this. How he suffered unjustly, and yet he did not say anything. Oh, how quick we are to want to justify ourselves when someone slanders us. Yet Christ, who could not in any way justly be slandered, did not defend himself. How did he do that? Because, Peter says in verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Christ was mindful of his father. What did he know of his father? He knew that he could entrust himself to his father, the one who perfectly judges. So Jesus knew he didn't have to defend himself because his father would defend him. So when we talk about obeying, and obeying in areas when we do not want to obey, you think about it at work, if you have a very harsh, uh, not kind, but that's the same, the same thing, but a boss you don't like, it's hard to obey. How can you obey? By being mindful of God, not focusing on all the wrong things with your boss, but instead focusing on God and entrusting your soul to God, knowing that he is the one who judges. You don't have to defend yourself because he is the one who will perfectly defend you. And if you think about in those areas or those times when we're tempted not to obey, where is our focus? If someone was to ask you, hey, what's going on in this situation? What would be the thing we would begin to talk about? 
all the things wrong with those people and how, how horrible they are, blah, 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 blah. But instead, how would our circumstances be different if when we were asked, what we would begin to talk about is who God is, the fact that he is a merciful father, the fact that he works all things together for good, the fact that he is the one who put all these circumstances together. Then that, by that, we would begin to walk in obedience just as God has called us to. The next one, going back to Titus chapter 3, he calls us to be ready for every good work. This is in contrast to the false teachers who were unfit for every good work. And to be ready for every good work is, is to be a people who are holy. You can look at this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul calls Timothy to flee all that's evil so that he would be a vessel for honorable use. So as God's people, we're to be ready to be used by God as we diligently seek after holiness. What else does he say here? He goes, we're to be ready for every good work. We're to speak evil of no one. So if you consider what you say, how much of it is maligning of others, how much of it is arrogantly critiquing others, How much of it is negative about others? Paul says what? We're not to speak evil. We're never to speak evil and never to speak evil about anyone. I found that difficult, but then I found it even more difficult when I thought about the fact that where does our speech come from? Our heart. So the issue is not merely what we say with our mouth, but it's what we're saying in our heart. So we may keep our mouths shut, but that doesn't mean we're then pleasing to God. It's not just don't speak evil with your mouth, but don't even speak evil in your heart. And surely here we see our utter inability to keep this command. If God has not worked in our heart, we cannot obey this. How we need God to save us. We need the transforming power of the gospel. When I, I don't know when I read in James, but in James chapter 3, he talks about how the tongue is like this, this evil that cannot be contained. And he says how human beings have, have tamed every single beast, but no one can tame the tongue. And how fitting that is for today's world, because what? We see so many advances in the world. We've tamed every beast, But then we've had all of these advances in medicine and science and technology and engineering. And yet, despite all of those advances, James's word still is true. It could be, yeah, you can can diagnose cancer in this way. Yeah, you can have this amazing device that can do all of these things that you don't even understand. But what? Still today, no one can tame the tongue. We see tongues running wild in the world today, and it points to the fact that we have an issue that we cannot fix. No one can tame this thing. And that issue points to the deeper issue of our heart. We have a heart that is corrupt, that is deceitful, and that is leading to our ultimate condemnation in hell. 
and we cannot save ourselves. There is this, this children's song that asks all of these different questions. Who can make a butterfly? Who can, who can make it rain? Who can make the clouds rise? And then it asks this. It says, oh, who can make our hearts clean? I'm sure I can't. Can you? Oh, who can make our hearts clean? No one but God, tis true. And so if you are here this morning and you, you see that, you see that your tongue runs wild and you can't contain it, realize that that is just pointing to a deeper issue of your heart, that your heart is not clean and you cannot make it clean. But God can. And that's what Paul goes on to say here in Titus, is that God saved us by His mercy and He gave us the Spirit and the Spirit transformed us, the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit, that He is the one who makes our hearts clean. Two other things here in Titus, he says to avoid quarreling, to, or three other things, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. So we're not to be a people who are quarreling, we're to be a people who are seeking after peace. We're not to be a people who are harsh, but who are kind. And we're not to be a people who are just focusing upon ourselves, but instead are are courteous, are focusing upon others in humility. And again, if we were to just close with those things, what you could walk out saying, what was the me- what was the point of today's message? The point of today's message was just just try a little harder to be kind. You know, just just stop that quarreling. Try to be a little gentler with your kids. Not be so harsh and angry with them. And, and just be courteous. You know, open the door for people and pull out the chair and, and get their meals first. That was the point. But again, we must not miss how the gospel is what, what compels us to live in this way, what enables us to live in this way. It's, it's what these commands flow from and what these commands depend upon. Because if we were to ask the question, why are we to do this? Why are we to submit? Why are we to obey? Why are we to do good works? Why are we to do all these things? The answer would be in verse 3, where he says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. The, The point would be what? We are to do these things with people that we don't particularly like because we were just like them. And why are we different? Why are we not on the side of the street? Why are we not enslaved to sin? Why are we not like all of those leaders that we despise? Because we chose to be different. We chose to get our act together and, and get a good job and try hard. Is that why? No, he says, we were just like them. And the reason why we're different is because God's goodness and loving kindness appeared. And as a result, he saved us. And again, why did he save us? Because we were better? No, he saved us according to his own mercy. So we are to relate to other people according to verses 1 and 2 because we were just like them. And the only reason why we're different now is because God saved us by his mercy, not because we deserved it. So as we 
think about how in the world are we going to obey these commands, where are we to look? Not inside of us, but we're to look at what has appeared. When you think about the sun appearing in the morning, you're looking at it coming up. So if we were to come to do these commands more faithfully, more be more fully pleasing to the Lord, we need to have our eyes there upon what has appeared, upon the grace of God that has appeared, upon the goodness and loving kindness of God that has appeared. Because as we look there, then we will be able to submit to these leaders that we despise. Then we will have this, this speech that is, is kind towards others. This, this despising that we have going on in our hearts, when we realize, you know what, we were just like them. And the only reason we're different is because of God's grace. So it's as we ever remind ourselves of these things. We reminded ourselves of these things this morning, but we need to ever remind ourselves of these things throughout the week. As pastor talks about, we have to, we have to preach to ourselves, preach the gospel to ourselves. So reminding ourselves of these things. So we look to Christ and may, may our God give us the grace we need to adorn this great gospel by which we've been saved. Let's pray together. Father, we acknowledge that by grace our hearts have been made new. We know that apart from you and by nature, we are foolish, we are disobedient, we are enslaved. But your goodness and loving kindness appeared and you saved us according to your mercy, not because we deserved it. Forgive us for how arrogant we can be, how much despising goes on in our hearts, how much disobedience takes place, how harsh we can be. Oh, Father, may you remind us of our great need of Christ, how we are totally dependent upon you for every single thing we have. Thank you that you have made our hearts clean because we know that only you can do that. So we give you the glory for it. Strengthen us by your spirit. For your name's sake, amen. Amen.